1: and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20 year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase. Today. Visit douglas.ca slash canadaland to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash canadaland. Garth Mullins, host of the Crackdown podcast, joining me from Vancouver. Welcome.
0: Jesse Brown, good to be here. Thank you.
1: Hey, Garth, today we're going to talk about my trip to Italy being rudely canceled. We're going to talk about gains in world markets being rudely canceled. Glad to have you today. Yeah,
0: me too. Thanks for having me.
1: This episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Rob Gomez, Connor Ruprecht, David Vandenbosso, Ed Smith, Emily Grick, Jeffrey Lai, Henry Hart, and Noah Pasco.
0: I support Canada land because as an expat living overseas, Canada land connects me to the great white North with its uncompromised and hard-hitting journalism. And you did a whole episode on Nardwar. Nuff said.
1: Girth. as I speak, I'm learning that uh, the World Health Organization has just declared a global pandemic with respect to the coronavirus crisis. We've been awash in coverage. Uh, We're hearing this from every different angle. You shared a a perspective online that I hadn't heard before. Can you share that with us?
0: Yeah, I was uh, sort of observing Canada's public health infrastructure kicking into gear. Uh, You know, a cabinet committee being formed, many millions of dollars being quickly funneled into research. People at the very top of the politics, prime ministers, premiers, Everyone's speaking on the matter and getting right out there. And I just thought, wow, this is really unfamiliar to me. And I have been living through another public health emergency for the last five years, the overdose crisis. And so we never saw action like this. We never saw, uh, you know, people sort of jumping to their feet and really saying, yes, we're going to be there. In fact, um, I think Justin Trudeau said yesterday, you know, Canada's government will be there for to give Canadians whatever you need, um, something like that. And I just never really heard messaging like that from government in the overdose crisis. And we've had a lot of what people are worried about now. We've had sort of, um, you know, scarcity of medication. We've kind of had rationing of resources. We've had um, sickness and a lot of deaths. And uh, it felt to me uh, a little novel. And so I did tweet out. I said, hey, if you're feeling anxious about um, COVID-19, talk to people who've been surviving the overdose crisis You won't feel less anxious, but you might feel less alone.
1: That's really interesting from a couple of perspectives. And I think, you know, your kind of opening position is like it's a bitter pill to swallow, seeing how everything snaps to action for this in a way that it didn't for this other epidemic, which is a much higher death toll at this point, anyhow. But I, it was interesting also that you ended on a note saying that like there's actually expertise amongst people who've been living this. So what is your advice to everybody who's you know most people experience this. I've experienced this like when you're in the healthcare system, when you're in a hospital and you feel like, wow, I, I really am powerless. I am at the mercy of a bureaucracy I don't understand. The mercy of professionals who speak a, a technical language that I'm not literate in. And I know they make mistakes. And uh, I have to advocate for myself. And a lot, like, you know, the, the stakes couldn't be higher. That's how I felt in, in situations in a hospital. But I think everybody's feeling that way everywhere right now. Maybe it's a way that you felt with the opioid epidemic and a lot of other people have felt for years. What advice do you have for us?
0: Well, first of all, I think this is real, right? So I'm not saying there's no problem or trying to downplay it or anything like that. And uh, I don't know the substance of the response. I've just seen the reporting on the public health response from from the federal government, from provincial governments. So I I don't know what's there. But I know that um, in the overdose crisis, we've realized certain things like um, the housing crisis is central to the overdose crisis. You know, so people not being properly housed makes things more precarious. We have a huge housing crisis here in Vancouver and in Toronto. And I mean, the whole country does. And that plays in here with COVID-19 as well, because the advice is you may have to, you know, quarantine yourself for two weeks. You may have to practice social distancing. How do you do that if you're all crammed together? Mm-hmm. Vancouver is full of empty houses that are owned by, you know, speculators or development companies or, or you know, plutocrats somewhere, you know, using the state's uh, public health powers you could uh redistribute a little bit of that space for the time needed um you also realize in an overdose crisis that you got to look at systems and so um right away you see that uh most people don't have guaranteed sick days at work you absolutely need that you know so you have to have the working conditions that support a good public health policy and and we don't have that for the most part in Canada So uh, again, if the government, if if the authorities are really serious about this, we should jump to guaranteeing people sick days. If an employer won't pay someone for it or fire someone because they're reporting sick, then there should be huge sanctions against that employer. And that could be passed relatively quickly. So some of these things do sound at first probably a little extreme, but incredible measures uh, get taken in public health emergencies. Like, you know, freedom of, of movement in Italy right now is mm-hmm. is uh, greatly changed. And even in, in uh, New Rochelle in New York. So um, these are considerations to take to get ahead of it. Locking down people's freedom of movement is um, is a pretty severe activity compared with giving people sick days.
1: It is, but it's one of these rare instances where, you know, an authoritative, uh, authoritarian state or drastic measures from the state and limitations on personal freedom, it seems are going to save lives if it's handled properly. I want to turn to the media coverage of this and I will say, I think that by and large, you know, it's an interesting situation where the dynamic flips and uh, the media often chasing after the public saying, here's a, a matter of public interest that you should be paying attention to. Please, can I get your attention? This is important. And the dynamic flips and the public is racing at the media saying, I need information. I need to know what's going on. What's going to happen next? What should I be doing? And the media, which I think is usually trying to kind of, um, you know, pump up the attractiveness of information and the importance and the urgency of information to get people's interest uh, has a really interesting decision to make in those moments because you could exploit the fact that people are so hungry for information and you can jack up the information or you can try to kind of calm it down and give, you know, act responsibly and give the information that's needed and be very careful. I think by and large, people who are looking for basic Information, scientific fact, and just instruction on how to behave are getting those resources. The Globe and Mail. I think I may have the new uh, coronavirus. What should I do? National Post. How to self-isolate. The Current. Missing work to stop coronavirus spread. Not so easy for workers without sick pay. Lawyer says. I think you know putting pressure on employers to let people stay home when they want to. You know that that's a, a positive role for the media to play. So I think, I think that like, you know, if you come looking for that stuff, you'll find it. However, and it's the nature of criticism, like we're here to, to talk about the other stuff. And it is incredible how a few stories that, you know, you can have a health reporter on your team who has an incredible history of knowledge and incredible, you know, uh, scientific knowledge and and a Rolodex full of uh, people to, to call on. But when everybody wants to fill their columns with coronavirus coverage, you know, the informed coverage can get drowned out or one bad piece... And, I, and, you know, I'll, I will name and shame here because, like, my goodness, this is something that the National Post aired an article and a video on. Um, let's have a, a listen to Stephen LeDrew, who I think is most known for oh, uh, yeah. humiliating himself on Fox News. Uh, he does videos for the National Post, and here's one of them.
0: So how much of the fall in stock prices is a fault of an overactive media? Well, it's impossible to measure precisely, but it stands to reason that the real economic consequences are due in large part to the coronavirus story being torqued by the media in order to sell the news. So buck up, consumers of journalistic endeavors and of would-be journalists. We are in for a tough ride with a few unpleasant surprises. But fear not, for while we are about to pay a price and globalism will no longer be the holy grail, we are going to push on. As a White House medical expert has just declared, you have a greater chance of dying in the United States from the flu than
1: from coronavirus. Buck up. Wow. Um, he goes on in that video to like, you know, I, th- I think his, his agenda is a little bit uh, revealed when he talks about how all of this sensationalist media in the newspapers, he says from a newspaper, is having an impact on the stock market. He actually says that uh, the news is torquing this to sell newspapers. The most bombastic coverage that I heard was him. But uh, The Post is not alone. The, uh, the Globe and Mail ran an opinion piece by uh, a retired doctor, Richard Shabazz, in which uh, he argues that COVID-19 is not a real global crisis, that, uh, you know, the numbers are going down in China. And he says, uh, you know, this is uh, the incredible shrinking pandemic. And uh, if you think it's a global crisis, you know, maybe you can't add. And he goes on to challenge the, um, the World Health Organization's data. And he also suggests that it's not really highly communicable. Now, he's a doctor, and I'm not, and and I'll say, Garth, this is a conversation on shortcuts between two news readers just trying to process this information. Neither of us are, are, are experts on on COVID nineteen. I'm gonna that be talking. right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna be talking to Andre Picard, um, health journalist for the Globe and Mail on Monday, so that it'll be a different conversation. So I'm reading a doctor telling me what I think a lot of people want to hear, which is that this is overblown. And everybody's getting worked up for nothing. And because I prepared for the show and read a lot of coverage, I know that there is a scientific consensus and a very strong urging from from uh, policymakers and from health officials that this is very serious. And uh, 35 to 40% of Canadians are, are anticipated to contract this. And what lies in the balance is whether we all get it at once or whether we get it over an extended period of time. In that first video, we heard, oh, this isn't the Spanish flu. I think the Spanish flu had a 2 to 3% mortality rate. This might have as high as 5 or 6 And if everybody needs a ventilator at once because nobody is heeding the advice, a lot of people are going to die based on whether or not we listen to the right information.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't have any idea whether it's the Spanish flu or not, right? But you don't compare now with after the Spanish flu. You compare now with just before the Spanish flu. Right. So it's disingenuous to say we know everything about this one event that happened 100 years ago and we're comparing what is just the beginning of the curve of the current event. What you do is you throw all the measures at it and you just hope it doesn't come. Right. So if if everyone um, does all the measures and public health uh, officials are are right and and people are able to combat it and reduce the uh, mortality from it and things, then these same colonists will be uh, saying, ha, I told you, look, wasn't such a big deal. Right. But it's it's so much hot air. I feel this this sort of uh, narrative is out there to kind of say, calm down, everyone don't worry so much. And I've looked at a lot of the coverage too. And I, I see the same consensus you do, Jesse, but I think people who are sort of not <laughs> preparing themselves to go on Canada land or whatever, get a less fulsome view. And I know a lot of people who are just like, eh, whatever, it's no thing, you know? And yeah. so I'm not sure that messages to calm down or, or messages to panic are helpful. Like when something's really serious, you can tell if you're being managed and you don't want to be managed. You just want the information, you know?
1: it seems to turn on what people do in the period where before they're symptomatic and whether we listen to authorities really uh, like that's going to matter a lot. And I think it's like a choose your own adventure thing where if you want to find a cause to to freak out and go hoard toilet paper, you'll, you'll find it. And if you want to find some shrugs, in the media that will uh, justify your decision to just go about your business as usual. And like, you know, resist even, even advice to wash your hands a lot. You'll find those headlines too. You bring up a really interesting thing. Like I remember I I took this attitude once when I was talking on a different uh, issue, I was talking to this uh, computer security expert named Dan Kaminsky. And uh, he brought up the Y2K bug. And I brought up the kind of like cliche, like, Oh, you guys in it were like, the sky is falling you know, everybody had to be afraid. We were all so tense. I thought that airplanes were going to fall from the sky. Nothing happened. And he says, yeah, because we fixed it. (laughs) (laughs) Because me and my colleagues were working day and night to go through the code and make sure that the world did not stop.
0: All those old cobalt coders got pulled out of retirement and put to work.
1: That's it. That's it. So, you know, for the Richard Chabas, the the retired doctor in the Globe and Mail saying, oh, look at China, Uh, they're seeing their numbers go down. They had like one of the most, I think, drastic and widespread quarantine efforts like in in modern history, one that I doubt we would be able to to organize. I mean, the relationship between the population and the state is different in China than it is here. Maybe what's happening in Italy will uh, will prove me wrong on that. I hope so. I like, you know, but it, it does seem like that was a direct result of containment and uh and people listening to authority and you know so the idea that it's just going to go down naturally here you know he doesn't explicitly say don't listen to the authorities but you know you read this thing and he's just so dismissive of the the concern that i think it's reasonable that people would leave the, that piece I, I don't know why the, how the global mail could in, in any kind of responsible way publish a piece like that like it it really was kind of shocking i mean you know stuff's going to slip in what are you going to do like the name and on in, in in the toronto star You know, somebody thought they were clever. So he's writing about how the James Bond movies release got uh, delayed because of the coronavirus. And it's having this this big impact on the uh, entertainment industry. So somebody thought they were very clever because there's a picture of an Asian woman with a a surgical mask on standing in front of uh, the James Bond poster that says, uh, no time to die. It's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, art directors and photo editors like, you know, nice juxtaposition there, but really like affirming some some stereotypical ideas. And, and you know, there, there is a racist impact of a lot of the coverage, the, the early coverage in particular, when it was called the Wuhan virus and, the, you know, even the China you know, virus.
0: The backlash is very real in Vancouver, too. You know, yeah, I'll bet. Uh, people, I'll bet. People have really taken off. And, and that's the importance, again, of decent reporting is to give people proper information so that that doesn't happen. You know, not not the kind of disinformation that's been uh, circulating around. You know, out out here, also we we sort of have this other situation going on where um, the advice that public health ag- officials are giving is very hard for um, at least the crew around my podcast and the and the community affected by the overdose crisis to follow. The health minister said last week it's time to stockpile food and meds. Well, for people like me who are on uh, methadone, you're mostly not trusted with that stuff. You know, so you have to go take it in front of a pharmacist every day. So it's quite difficult to stockpile. So I've been sort of writing to government officials saying, hey, you should kind of relax the rules on that for the duration of the crisis so that people can take it home. You run out of that, you're very dope sick, you're know, you in kind of a mess. Um, Also, people don't have the money to stockpile food. Uh, As I was saying before, they don't have the space to self-isolate. So a lot of the kinds of um, protocols that people are calling for, you have to have a certain amount of resources to be able to pull that off. And lots of people don't. So there's, I haven't seen any thought go into that yet. I think that that leaves people facing, at least the people here on the downtown east side in Vancouver, facing kind of a third wave of crisis. Lots of people have compromised immune systems or have um, COPD, like uh, difficulty with the lungs from, from smoking a lot, smoking a lot of drugs. And so they're kind of in the bullseye on this, or they're a very vulnerable part of the population that could be affected by COVID-19. And the virus, without extra help, you know, like uh, giving people the ability to stockpile stuff, to self-isolate, to, to do the things they might need to do, uh, I'm really worried is going to tear through the community. And this is a community that's experienced the housing crisis, two overdose crises in my lifetime, um, the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls predation from, from Picton and other people. And it's just it's incredible to see wave after wave of destruction come. And we kind of put up our hands and say, hey, this is this is heading our way here. And uh, it's like you can't make yourself heard.
1: I think you're right that the the coverage does assume a certain type of reader. And, and the fact that this is visited disproportionately on different people and, you know, is is something that like. I think, you know, it could make you pretty angry when you think about communities that don't have drinking water and you're giving all this health advice. And like you say, I self-isolate when you don't have you know proper housing. This is, you know, absolutely going to affect people on the margins a lot more. And the relationship, though, is that you're kind of getting this message to the, the the coverage. Well, like, look, we assume that you are. They assume a reader like me. They assume somebody like a you know, middle aged uh, white guy with kids They're like, OK, your kids are probably fine. You know, you're probably fine. You know, other people are, are not so fine. But we're the ones who actually go and transmit this thing. If, if if you're, like, asymptomatic in the early days of it and you're going to conferences and you're the one who's traveling, uh, it's actually, like, the people who don't have it or don't know they have it yet who you most need to impress the public health information on, you know, and, and you know, the priorities are, are, you know, couldn't be more specific, you know. So the, back to the Vinay Menon column where he's like, what's important here? The impact on the uh, on the entertainment industry. And... Just the, uh, the coarseness in this. I'll read this. Is, this is a, a sentence, but it's, it's a long and strange sentence, so bear with me. The current real life outbreak, which by Friday morning had surpassed 100,000 cases, including more than 3,400 deaths, is making Hollywood cough into its elbow as production is halted and release dates, including for the next James Bond thriller, No Time to Die, are delayed after being bitch slapped with a medical glove and locked into quarantine. I mean, fuck off.
0: (laughs) Well, the release date of a James Bond film is the weirdest metric for measuring a pandemic I've ever heard.
1: It's just such a poor sentence that, like, it's so jarring, the use of the term bitch slap, but then you have to uh, back up by about 100 words to figure out what the subject of that sentence is. That is, is it the outbreak that's being bitch slapped, or is is it Hollywood that's being bitch slapped? Something uh, is being bitch slapped with a medical glove, and whatever it is, it feels kind of trivial- in the wider picture of uh, what we're all experiencing here, yeah, there's a lot going on in that sense for sure. Finally, before we move on, Garth, I uh, I have uh, some sad news to relay. We've received confirmation: the Rebel Media news cruise has been canceled. Uh, <laughs> you know, don't laugh. What's that? Garth. What's that? You feeling, know, th- th- this, uh, this, 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 Freud. This.
0: I don't.
1: <laughs> there are real people impacted here. Our producer, David Crosby, reached out and uh, received word back from uh, Pam Hunty, the group director for the Cruise and Vacation Authority. Hi, David. The Rebel Media News Cruise in July has been canceled and will reschedule in 2021. Thank you for your interest. Say what you will about the Rebel Media. I mean, yes, please say what you will, but um, at least they have accountability because we have, uh, we have inquired as to the fate of the Globe and Mail Cruise, and as of press time, they have not responded to our request for comment.
0: So wait, is this a thing? Is this is this the modern uh, sort of media business model? Is that you have a cruise? Where's the Canada Land cruise? Oh my God, where's the Crackdown cruise? It's like a fucking leaky canoe and a six-pack. I don't know what that hell that would be. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I can't get the image of Ezra Levant wearing like a captain's a sea captain's hat that says Rebel <laughs> Commander on it out of my head. You know, and, and teaching everyone how to tie hitch knots or something.
1: I am really, really bummed out about the cancellation of that rebel cruise because I wanted him on that boat. Earth, on this program, we, uh, we duly note things that uh, we feel deserve a bit of uh, attention, maybe more attention than they've received. I have something I'd like to share. Go for it. This is a piece by CBC reporter Jacques Poitras reporting uh, out of CBC New Brunswick. Daughter of Dennis Olin's defense lawyer was a producer of CBC documentary The Oland Murder. What? It is a, a really strange story that, as you get into the details of it, the fact that this got past them. So they had this four-part documentary series on the Richard Olin murder case, which we, uh, our show Commons did a fantastic episode on this guy who was convicted of killing his gazillionaire dad and then appealed and went on, on appeal. So the, you know they had this uh, four-part documentary series, and one of the producers is the defense lawyer's daughter. They had great access to Dennis Oland, the uh, the accused, and to his defense team, including the father of the co-producer. So uh, Jacques Poitras writes that this raises questions about journalistic judgment, given that the series co-producer Caitlin Gold, Title bomb, is the defense lawyer Gold's daughter. And it's interesting because there actually is like a court record where, you know, the way that the CBC does documentaries is often it's, it's uh, farmed out. A production house actually makes the documentary and the CBC airs it. But in the CBC's weird regime, it still has to conform to their journalistic standards and practices guidebook, which would prevent something like this. And uh, in fact, they went to court because, you know, you can't get audio tape in Canadian courtrooms, which is, uh, you know, a real problem for the true crime uh, journalism business. But um, there are exceptions to that. And the producer of this documentary series actually went to a court and tried to get audio uh, from the trial. And in their uh, affidavit, the producer said, that though she's not a journalist for this project, she will be adhering to the journalistic standards and practices of the CBC. Uh, Apparently that uh, was not the case. However, CBC says, you know, we didn't know that this producer was the daughter of the defense attorney, but there's no problem. The documentary series still conforms to our standards. So nothing to see here. And furthermore, um, CBC's spokesperson, Chuck Thompson said, look, you know, she received an associate producer credit as a courtesy. And while we acknowledge the family connection could be perceived as a conflict of interest, she had no editorial input. This happens sometimes, you know, you throw somebody a vanity credit. She just got in a, it was a courtesy that we gave her this credit. Jacques Poitras dug into that and, you know, reporting for the CBC so good on Jacques Poitre and found an old Facebook post where this uh, woman gold title bomb seemed to suggest that she was more than just an honorary producer. She described the project to her friends as a three year journey uh, that was finally ready to air, which I think suggests that she was more than just a ceremonial, you know, vanity producer of this thing. So that is a, a juicy little bit by Jacques Poitre for CBC about the CBC that I thought more people should know about. Duly noted. Garth, what do you have? I
0: have uh, more on the public health front, but uh, not on COVID-19. In the last week, uh, the Alberta government of the United Conservative Party and Jason Kennedy released a report on looking into safe injection sites or safe consumption sites. Uh, and Jason Kennedy campaigned against these these places, right? The, about seven of them have opened in Alberta since the start of the overdose crisis uh, under the previous Rachel Notley government. And so, uh, to make good on a campaign promise, uh, Kenny sort of struck this panel, um, an expert review panel, um, but he gave it a mandate that it couldn't really look into the the health benefits or or anything like that. It was limited to you know looking at crime rates and you know disorder in the neighborhood, property values, and what businesses thought and that sort of thing. So it was uh, constrained there. So the report came out, and uh, everyone was kind of expecting it to be um, not a, not a glowing review of of these places but it was, it was quite bad. Safe injection sites are like no other public health intervention in the world. They're there to, you know, save people from overdose primarily. And they have an 100% success rate. Like there's nobody has ever died in a safe injection site anywhere in Canada or the world that I've been able to find. And that's pretty incredible. Um, they're also there to reduce uh, infectious disease transmission, you know, HIV and hep C. And so this report sort of goes through and, and, uh, well, the report, the report chooses some strange sources of data. So when it looks at economic impact, um, it sort of uses perceptions. So it asks people in the neighborhood, what they think, like, uh, you know, they kind of have surveys. Do you think it's bad? Yes, it seems bad. Uh, you know, things in the neighborhood. Uh, thank you to, uh, Carrie Tate of the globe for noticing this one thing in the report, which was. The quality of a neighborhood was determined to have gone down. You know, the ranking in the neighborhood has gone down. They looked at the survey from Avenue Calgary Magazine, their livability poll. But actually, it was getting people's opinions on how many restaurants and pubs were the right number for a neighborhood. Maybe there's too much. Maybe the neighborhood isn't as good because it's crowded with pubs. So this was somehow evidence that the neighborhood was a poorer place because of the safe consumption site. Really like sloppy sort of sourcing and for something that's supposed to shape government policy. So the government wrote itself a report to say safe injection sites are bad. The report said, "Yes sir, okay, uh, we don't like them and in fact uh, maybe you ought to reduce or restrict needle distribution while you're at it." I mean in Vancouver they restricted needle distribution in the 90s and we had the highest rates of HIV transmission in the industrialized world. So this is a pretty dangerous report right here. And in the same week Uh, They're announcing they're closing down what they call injectable uh, opiate agonist treatment uh, next year, closing the program. So this is a province that's just declared war on drug users. And Jason Kenney has said pretty clearly, and and his whole party has said, they don't care if we die. Um, And so, yeah, I definitely want to note that because um, this is a trend in this country on the right among conservatives, you know, people out there in the world, lots of people have always hated drug users, but now these people are being organized by leaders. You know, people like, like Kenny and Ford and, you know, people from the whole Harper era that opposed this sort of thing. They're recognizing this is a political base that we have to get together, uh, sort of reactionaries that, that don't want to see this sort of thing that want to go back to the Nancy Reagan, just say no. And it's just reckless during an overdose crisis.
1: It's like, Sorry, folks. We gave the idea a fair shake. We we checked the uh, the, the NIMBY index and it turns out uh, the results are in not in my backyard. Uh, so, you know, tough break.
0: I mean, the report didn't even bother to say, go look at property values and see if there's a change. You know what I mean? So that there there is hard data there. I don't think the narrative is what they say, but they just, it was lazy, you know?
1: Duly noted. I want to point out one last thing that was brought to uh, my attention by our own Arshi Mann. That is that, uh, you know, life goes on amid all of the tumult and, um, you know, we still have to worry about the bottom line and um, the Canadian Wealth Summit hopefully won't be cancelled. I learned all about this uh, on CP24. Welcome back. You're watching CP24 Breakfast Weekend and all the time we hear the words, I want to be rich. How many times have you told yourself that? But many people believe people should actually be saying, I want to be wealthy. Now, on March 21st, the Canadian Wealth Summit will be taking place at Roy Thompson Hall to teach people how they can increase their wealth. And get this, it's also going to feature some big-name celebrities. Now, with more on this, I'm joined by Cora Cristobal, one of the speakers at the summit, and one of the organizers, Sunil Tulsiani. Good morning to you both. Yeah, so Sunil Tulsiani, uh talking about this summit coming up. Kevin Hart's going to be there, so it's going to be funny as well as informative. And Archie Mann brings to my attention that... Uh, Yeah, Sunil Tulsiani is a guy who's been banned from trading securities for life by the Ontario Securities Commission and the Manitoba Securities Commission. He sold unregistered bonds as a part of a Ponzi scheme, using high-pressure sales tactics to uh, 80 investors, separating them from their retirement funds. He's a former police officer with the OPP who used his experience in the force to enhance his credibility with vulnerable investors, reported the CBC. He's a fraudster. This guy is is a fraudster who is on CP24 inviting me to his wealth summit. And uh, it's like an ad for this thing. I'm sure this thing is going to get canceled. It's just a really strange bit of television that uh, somehow got past them. And I would love to know more about how this kind of press release. So, you know, they obviously wanted to promote this event of theirs and they couldn't have asked for a better treatment than the one they got I'm really curious as to why CP24 would put this guy on. I I hope they didn't know that he has been banned from trading securities for bilking uh, retirees out of their savings. But uh, I don't know one way or the other. Duly noted. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there. A lot of mattress liars. Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Garth, Garth, uh, things just continue to melt down in the global uh, stock markets. And as we speak, the, a bad picture is just getting worse and worse. Have you been following the coverage?
0: Yeah, I have been. And just while we're recording this show, Jesse, I'm just noticing that things are uh, getting worse and worse and kind of in free fall on the markets anyway. Like most people, I don't have millions invested in the stock market, but I'm sure that I'll be, as a taxpayer, paying for part of the bailout.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I'm look, I'm I'm well out of my depth analyzing financial coverage, but I, you know, I was affected by this. Everyone's affected by this. What a shit show with the uh, Saudi versus Russia standoff and and the the tanking of oil prices and the effect on our economy. I have done my best to orient myself with how our media has covered this. There's no big surprises there. You know, um, Canadian economy braces for downturn on oil crash, coronavirus fears, Globe and Mail. My worst day by far, oil patch reacts to unprecedented oil crash with spending cuts. That's National Post. For Alberta's embattled energy industry, Saudi price war is nothing short of catastrophic. Financial Post. uh, That's strong, but probably true. Where do you put your money in these turbulent times? David Rosenberg has two words for you. Save dividend. Some practical advice for investors out there. And Bloomberg reporting, Trudeau government pledges targeted steps to help Canada's economy. So, you know, this is uh, practical news coverage, and I, I I don't really take any issue with it. You know, people want to know about their investments. Everybody is affected by the economy and by the job rate. And what's our government doing to help us? Uh, these are all legitimate questions. And uh, you know, here we've got the Globe and Mail trying to calm down the market. Why now is a good opportunity to load up on Canadian bank stocks? Okay, maybe so. And I know some people who have a lot of money who see this as like uh, there's a there's a there's a bargain out there. And you know, I'm a little bit skeptical. When the Globe and Mail is, I wonder if they're trying to steady markets while big investors pull out, and obviously many have. But I don't know. For the most part, I'm just feeling like this is this is like part and parcel with what you expect from the financial pages. It's fine. But I have been trying to think of this in a bit of a different way, Garth. Can I like kind of explore these thoughts with you for a minute? Sure, yeah, please. I mean, this kind of coverage serves a purpose, and, and, and people, like I say, they, they do care about the economy, and, and everybody has a, is impacted by it. But there are assumptions that are baked into those headlines. You know, there's assumptions that are baked into standard financial coverage and assumptions that they make about us, about the newsreader, So you got this lens of of the shareholder, the lens of the gas buyer, the average Canadian who wants to see our GDP always on the rise, uh, who wants to see our energy sector, which is a cornerstone of our economy, thrive. You can't really be rooting for the Canadian economy such as it is without really rooting for the energy sector, and it assumes that I am. So it puts forward those interests, and those are widespread interests, but they are not the only interests. And I think that our news coverage kind of suggests that they are, that that's the default. And that if there are other perspectives out there, they're fringe perspectives. But I know that there are a growing number of Canadians who have been saying long before this most recent catastrophe that climate change is their top priority. That's their main interest. They place that above their interest in the economy's growth and everything else. Uh, They place that above getting a good return next year. And many of them have been on board for a long time calling for a drastic divestment from fossil fuels recognizing that this would mean a massive impact on our economy, some of those people have been advocating for things like the Green New Deal and and how we can actually steer a transition and a huge economic project, you know, akin to FDR's New Deal to create green jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, without comment on, on you know, whether I, I agree or think that it's all a great idea, that exists, you know, <laughs> that, that is an interest that a lot of people have, have let be known. That's where their interest lies. However, those voices, I think, have been marginalized in the past because what they're calling for was thought of as just like so uh, disruptive and radical that to to suddenly divest from fossil fuels would have a catastrophic impact on our economy. And therefore, that was never a reasonable plan. So regardless of how many people felt that way, uh, that couldn't be part of the main business discourse because it was never going to happen. But now disruption has been done to us. You know, like what might be happening right now is that what was feared, the violent, sudden radical disruption of our economy that has a lot to do with, with a sudden divestment from fossil fuels, that's happening anyhow. But instead of us choosing that and planning for it and steering that, it's happening completely out of our control. And you might think that in the wake of that, those marginalized interests would kind of have a little bit more space in the discourse you know, to have a victory lap and say, I told you so, fine. But more importantly, to kind of reframe things and maybe reset what is considered a radical idea and what interests are considered the default interest. And like, we can actually look back on their plans and say, you know what, in hindsight, some of that is not feeling as so radical, but actually like it was reasonable and sober and like conservative, Garth, you know? Like if it's conservative to plan for disaster, to get ahead of disaster and avoid it if you can, that, that actually w- was a conservative plan by a certain definition of the word. But we're not doing that. You know, we're not missing a beat. It's, it's how do we get our economy back on track? How do we get our products back to market? How do we minimize the damage to GDP? Are we getting good economic uh, leadership that is helping us achieve those things? That's what I've been thinking as I've been reading the business coverage.
0: Yeah, I, I guess uh, I, sh- I share a lot of that. I read the business coverage and I think, who is this written for? You know, it, does it? Do they suddenly imagine we're all like uh, some kind of hedge fund manager somewhere or something like that? That we're all sort of pulling levers and making important decisions. I just don't think that's most people. You know, like I think most people are spectators to all of this, or um, re- you know, receivers of the impacts downstream. And um, you know, these these sort of uh, oh my god moments are hard to believe too because. This is the business cycle, right? Like recessions go in a cycle. So if it wasn't the OPEC negotiations breaking down and COVID-19, it would be something else. We're way overdue. Everybody says the Dow is overheated, you know. All of these things are telling us this is going to happen. So mm-hmm. this is just the nature of capitalism. Crisis is not something that comes in from the outside. It's part of the beating heart. It's part of the system. You know, it destroys everything every once in a while and builds it again and all this. And all these people, all these conservatives and people in the center who just love market forces, let the market decide. That's the best way to organize society is the free market. They all become Keynesian economists all of a sudden in crisis, right? So they're not just like, well, let the market decide who lives and who dies, which company gets to go, what industry is profitable. They don't say that. They're like, we got to bail this all out. We got to have a big transfer of wealth upwards, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, um, the profits are always, um, privatized and, and kept in private hands, but the losses and the risks are socialized and put out to society. But every, you know, every decade or whatever, you get these big business cycle moments of rupture and what comes after that could be a blank slate, right? Like we all could decide what comes after. So in the 2008 crisis. You know, Canada busily bought up, you know, this is the the Harper Conservatives then, free marketeers to the end, suddenly we're bailing everything out, including GM. So, you know, Canada bought up a lot of GM Canada and you'd think, well, as shareholders, we could decide what gets made there and and what happens and and, and make some good moves. You know, maybe we want to make electric cars. So let's go to GM Oshawa and find out what's going on now. Fuck all, Right. So we, we basically bailed out GM and allowed them to go and, and make their business practices, which ended up putting a bunch of Canadian auto workers out of work. So the rehabilitation of the economy is actually the rehabilitation of the class at the top, and everybody else can just, uh, you know, go try to survive. They do really well during recessions, you know.
1: I guess so. I mean, you know, like you, you get this, these kind of um, meat and potato stories about, you know, like, oh, you know, it's a price break at the gas pumps and, you know, lending just got a lot cheaper. So that that's something for everybody, except when you look at the long-term impacts on that, on, on housing prices and rent prices. And, you know, it, it does feel like we're just kind of doing the same old tricks again. And what I will say is, I feel like there is an appetite out there for a different kind of conversation. Cause I feel like People are more willing than ever to do something with all of these things we're talking about today. It really takes a personal toll and and people are living with a tremendous amount of anxiety. And I think that, like, I want to help in some way. And people are willing to drastically change their behaviors. I think people are willing to make sacrifices and uh, an idea of like reestablishing some kind of civic sense or or, or community or working together uh, towards a common goal I like The urge has never been stronger that I can recall, except when I think back on the aftermath of 9-11, when everybody was like, oh, my God, what do we do? And the message we got from authority and from the media was, go buy things. Don't sell your stocks. Please don't sell your stocks and go buy things. And I don't know. I, I keep waiting for a different message. I think people want one.
0: I think 9-11 is a, it's a perfect example right there, because every time there's a crisis, there's an opportunity to remake the world. And then, you know, there's people who just like want the world to go back how it was with the people in charge benefiting who were there before. But there's always an opportunity for things to get worse as well. And that's what happened after 9-11. You know, you had the real acceleration of the surveillance state and all kinds of things that have never really disappeared since then. You've had Mm -hmm. these uh, wars like in Afghanistan that never stopped. You've had this kind of militarization and Gitmo, all sort of stuff That's just never gone away. That's just been reincorporated into what's normal. And, you know, you can have worse now as well. Like when you have capitalism in crisis, it's a great opportunity for a more authoritarian or a a fascist ideology to make great gains. And we have all that stuff live in Canada right now. So when there's a crisis, there's this competition for ideas. And I think what history shows us is the, the corporate structure, the people at the top will side with fascism before they'll side with something more redistributive, you know, where there's uh, more of a socialist uh, bent to it. And that's that's quite worrying to me too.
1: All right, that's your Canada Land Shortcuts for the week. Garth, uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Jesse. It has never been easier, people, to uh, support independent media, to support Canada Land. You can do so in Canadian dollars for the first time, and the technology makes it a lot quicker than it's ever been. You just go to the show notes, and there's a link, and you hit that link, and um, you sign up with uh, Apple Pay, Google Pay, or a credit card, and bloop, you've got a premium podcast feed installed directly onto your podcasting app, or you can do that just as easily when you go to CanadaLandShow.com slash join. You can email me about this show at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read what you send to me. We're on Twitter at canadaland. Garth, where can people find you and where can they find your terrific podcast?
0: I'm on Twitter at Garth Mullins, and you can find Crackdown wherever you get your podcast from, you know, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever. We're also on Twitter as uh, at Crackdown Pod.
1: Everybody should listen to that show it's just fantastic and everybody should listen to cool mules We are so proud of this series and the response to it But if you haven't heard it yet Or if you have heard it and you want other people to hear about it uh, spread the word subscribe rate it review it share it Wherever you get your podcasts this episode is produced by david crosby our managing editor is kevin sexton Syndication is by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca.